0: When Matthew, or Marco, gave me this passage, I said, what on earth is going on at KCC? <laughs> he wants me to speak about all these believers who take one another to, to court. Uh, I thought maybe uh, uh, things had gone somewhat awry. Uh, and then my next thought was, H- how is this possibly relevant uh, if, it isn't, um, uh, if this isn't a particular problem amongst the people of God? But I remember quite a number of years ago, I was at a conference. And the conference was about narcotics abuse, about drug addiction. And there were people from various disciplines coming to speak on it, and it was in a general Christian context. But the thing that I remember most about the conference was the theme or the topic. And there was a sort of a heading, a banner that went with it, a strapline line associated with it. And this is what it actually read. And it said, drug addiction, sickness, or a symptom. Drug addiction, sickness, or a symptom. And really what we're saying is, is addiction the real issue? Or are there underlying issues? And this is just an expression of it. This is just a sign of the people's deeper need, uh, uh, an underlying problem which they have. And in a sense, when you come to this letter to the Corinthian church, there are lots of issues which are being raised. There's a problem of factions. So much so that the Apostle Paul has to write, it's Christ divided. He's not like that. There's one Christ that all have. There were divisions. There were quarrels. And then coming into this uh, sixth chapter, there's this question of litigation, Christians taking other Christians to court. And then finally, impure and immoral actions and activities. And I think, in a sense, these are symptoms. These are signs of a deeper problem, something which is underneath And in a sense, I think that is brought out for us in the third chapter and the opening verses. And i just read them to you because they emphasize the condition or the state of the believers, which gave rise to these other problems. Paul says, Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as those who are still worldly. Mere infants in Christ, I give you milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly, for since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? When one one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? And so what Paul is saying here, behind and beneath all these particular issues and problems... There's the fact that you are acting in a way which is contrary, a contradiction of what you are in Christ. In other words, there was a difference, a disparity between the creed, the things that they said they believed, and their conduct, the way in which they behaved. There was a a difference between, in a sense, their their faith, which they had in the Lord Jesus Christ, and, and the way the facts of their life and their living at that particular time. And I think the Apostle Paul is dealing with this particular issue. Now, when you come, as I mentioned, the sixth chapter, it deals with these two problems, one of litigation and the other of so-called Christian freedom and liberty, to live as we please or live as we think. And he's dealing with those things. And then there's a little transitional part in the middle, where he speaks about what they were and what uh, had happened to them when they came to the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you notice how the Apostle Paul approaches this? And if you read through the whole chapter, six times he poses a question and dealing with different elements. For example, we find in chapter 6 in verse 2, he, he tells us, with regards to them he said uh, do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world verse 3 he goes on and speaks again do you not know that we will judge angels how much more the things of this life down in verse 9 do you not know that warmongers will not unheard the the kingdom of God and then in the second section there's three similar things do you not know do you not know what is the Apostle Paul doing here? Why is he posing questions? Well, I was brought up with the understanding that the next best thing to a very good answer is an excellent question. It's an excellent question. That's the next best thing. Because what does a question do or what is a question supposed to do? It it means that you start to think or you make people think because of the question. It causes people to consider And Paul knows it's so easy for people to stop thinking about their Christian faith and what they believe and the implications of that and how it works out. Paul's aware of that, that somehow we can just go sailing into circumstances and situations without bringing that knowledge to bear on that particular issue that we're dealing with. And he knows it's quite easy in one sense to hold the faith and yet not see the implications of that faith, or the application of that faith. Let me just give you a couple of illustrations. There was a, co- a professor in a, 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 a seminary, a Bible college, and he had been lecturing on the parables. And then after some time, he asked one of the students, he said, I want you to come and present the story of the Good Samaritan. I want you to bring that, after we have a break, you come and teach teach the class. And of course the students said, I'd better get back quick. And he was running back to his room, getting those books which he had on the subject down. But in the meantime, the professor had arranged for another student to be in the corridor outside his room and pretend to be sick. And so the young man who was to deliver his teaching on the Good Samaritan comes out of his room and this other student says, oh please help me, I'm sick, I'm in need. He said, I'd love to help you but I have to deliver this message
1: <laughs> and runs
0: past him. You can see. And when he came, the professor said, let's hear what you've got to say. And he wonderfully described his story and he brought out the details in a vivid way. And many of the class were enthralled. And then the professor said, did you meet anybody on your way back to the lecture? He says, yes, there was one one of the chaps there and he wasn't feeling well and I told him I'd gladly help him except I have to come and deliver this. And of course the professor said, you had the facts, but you didn't have the truth. That's the way it is. It's so easy to have our facts in one hand and yet to miss the implications. And this is what Paul is driving home. A friend of mine who's a pastor, and uh, again, he was uh, dealing with the parable. I don't know how, how the parables have this effect on people. And it was about the, the public and the sinner and the Pharisee in the temple. And here the sinner pleads with the Lord to, to have mercy upon him and forgive him that he's a sinner. And, and here's the Pharisee and he said, Lord, I thank you I'm not like this other man. I do this, I do that, and the other. And, and after the teaching of, my friend is the pastor, they had a time of prayer. And one of the congregations stood up and said, Lord, I thank you, I'm not like that Pharisee. <laughs> but didn't really get the points. It didn't really hit home. Never saw the implication that what the parable was saying was actually dealing with that type of attitude and, and spirit, a sense of superiority like another person. And so the Apostle Paul here realises that. To have the truth Sometimes I think as Christians we can be like very good rugby players. Now, the, the days when I played rugby, you know, I I, I am not one of the, I wasn't one of these sixteen-stone or eighteen-stone people that could run. I, I just turned sideways and they couldn't see me. <laughs> but I remember an Ireland at the time, he prayed for the British lands, he wrote half, and he prayed for Ireland called Dr. Jack Carl, who later went to the, the Congo. And he had the most wonderful body swerve. It was amazing. And you could see one of these big forwards coming up to grab him. And just by the movement of his hips, they would miss him. And they would just wave through the people. Marvel. And sometimes like that, we can be like that with the truth. We can acknowledge the truth that's being brought to us. And yet when it comes to the personal application of it, or the implications of it, somehow or other we manage to avoid the truth with a spiritual bodies with it. And so Paul realized that. And that's was happening in the church in in Corinth. And Paul, what he's really doing here, he's seeking through these particular issues to bring home to them the fact when you become a believer, when you experience the Holy Spirit's power, when you're changed, when you're converted, when you're regenerated, there is something fundamental takes place in your life and that has to be expressed in your living. And... The manner of your conduct, and it was at this point, in terms of application, that there was a difficulty. Now, the word application, it has a few nuances associated. What it really means is usually to bring two things together in order to affect a change. You apply something to something else. For example, very simply, if, if say you're wanting to paint a door or a wall, you apply the paint to the wall. Not to leave it in that condition as it previously, previously was, but to bring about a change. Or I say someone has a wound, and you apply pressure. The idea of applying the pressure to the wound is to stop the hemorrhage, to bring about a transformation in that person's condition. This is what Paul is saying here. We must have such... An intimate and real and meaningful encounter with the truth that affects a change and brings about a transformation that we're dif- different people. Now, the second way in which the word application is used, it means to knit into or to knit together. My mother was a great knitter. She was like a machine. i tell you how good a knitter she was. She kn- She knitted me an iron jumper, and it's over 50 years 50 years old. It's been on the cricket pitch. It's been up the mountains. It's been different countries in the world. And I can wear it today. Why the stitching was so intertwined. So intertwined. And what Paul is saying here. Look. The truth must be so knitted and woven into your experience. That you become one with the truth. And something quite beautiful. Is To be produced, something that's lasting, something that's reasonable useful, something that's real. And so this is what Paul is doing here. And by posing these questions, it's getting to think, Don't you know? Don't you know? Don't you know? Surely remember. You must have you must know that. You must recall that. What has it meant to you? What has it done for you? What is it doing in you? This is what the Apostle Paul is seeking to do here. Now, the particular issue that he is dealing with in this particular passage is one of litigation. And he's saying, do you notice Paul's reaction? I think it's worthwhile taking note of that. Verse 1, if any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead before the Lord's people? would you even dare to do that he's almost saying surely that wouldn't enter your mind you can't possibly think ever have thought of doing that it seems so incongruous so out of keeping so incompatible for what do you believe that you wouldn't think of doing that remember John Mackinac those who are older And John Mackinac used to pray, and and, and they turned to the umpire, you can't be serious. (laughs) And Paul's saying to these believers in Corinth, surely you can't be serious, that you've actually thought of doing that, or you have done that. Now, it might seem to us, well, that's quite outside the realm of our experience, (laughs) it doesn't have much to do with us but you have to remember the situation which existed in Corinth and in Greece these were people the first port of call where there was any dispute was litigation that's the way in which they functioned in fact uh, going and watching cases of litigation was like their amusement it was like people going to watch the match or, or, or some other sport it was entertainment to them and so really it was a way of life that was the atmosphere the environment which existed at that particular time they were breathing that in. They were taking that on board. It was quite natural and normal to behave like that. And this is why Paul, he says to the Corinthians, you are still worldly. You are still acting like the ungodly. You're behaving like the unbeliever, which you once were. Do you not see that this doesn't fit it's just not right. You're going back to that sort of life. And this is what Paul is seeking to bring home to these particular people. Now, Paul seeks in this. And what he's doing is he's reminding them of their calling, he's reminding them of their privileges, he's reminding them that they are highly privileged. Highly privileged. And he says, now, but you're living in a a level lower than your privileges, than what your privileges should uh, do for you and do through you. Now, God has no underprivileged people. I hope you believe that. All the people of God are all highly privileged. Every one of us. We've been blessed with all spiritual blessings. James and our dear sister. Very helpfully at the beginning of our service reminded us that we're blessed with all spiritual blessings and heavenly places in Christ. What wonderful blessings they are. There are no unblessed believers. But Lord the Lord has no underprivileged people, He has a lot of underdeveloped people. People who do not enter into their privilege. People who do not act and behave and conduct themselves. In accordance with their privileges. Alexander the Great was a great soldier. uh, Alexander. Uh, And one day, he came across another soldier. And he watched the soldier. And then he said to him, what is your name? And the soldier said, I'm Alexander. Then he said to him, if you take the name Alexander, behave like Alexander. Or else give up the name. Alexander. It's a great name. And he said, If you're calling yourself Alexander, be like an Alexander. And this is what Paul is saying here. You call yourself a believer. You call yourself a child of God. You call yourself a servant of Jesus Christ. You take that upon you. Now conduct yourself correspondingly. A life that is compatible with that particular thing. And so, do you notice, this is an amazing thing. Verse 2, do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? Hey, what a thing. Christians are going to judge the world. I don't know if you ever thought that. What it means is, because of our relationship and our union with Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ is ultimately going to judge the whole world. He is the judge appointed. He is the one to whom that is assigned and given by the triune God. And because we are united with him, then we share in that, that, judge, that judgment. We are part of that tribunal. What a thing. And he said it clearly. And then he doesn't stop there. He said, do you not know that you will judge angels? Now there's some debate exactly about what that means. But clearly Paul is adding another dimension. You judge the world, then you're going to judge these higher beings what exactly that means, you're going to be part of that you're going to take take part of that discipline Uh, and he said do you not know that how much more the things of this life if you're going to do that if you're going to have the the ability to do that how can you not judge things of this life how can you you think we're not up to it we're not able, that's what he's saying Uh, and then he goes on if therefore you have disputes in these matters, let me put it this way. Say there was a, um, a great, uh, let's say, a great surgeon. No, a doctor. And he could perform the most complicated, uh, intricate operations. And then you cut your finger and you came to him and said, would you put a stitch in it? Oh, I can't manage a stitch in a finger. <laughs> That's beyond me. Can, can you imagine it? that's what Paul said, if you're going to do that how can you not think that you can sort out differences and even financial matters or disputes amongst yourselves that's really what what he's saying therefore if you ask disputes about such matters, do not ask some ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church now what what Paul is saying here he wasn't sort of saying these people are incompetent As far as ordinary uh, judicial activities and and, and court rulings are concerned. But what he's saying is, these people, because they're not believers, their realm of knowledge, their approach to life is totally different from yours. What does he mean by that? The man who isn't a believer is only thinking about the financial and the material and the here and now, the present. Isn't that right? That's the mind of the person of the world. They have no thought of the spiritual. They have no thought of the relationship of believer to believers and believers to the Lord. They have no thought of the eternal. They don't have those thoughts. How then can they come and make rulings or you take them to make rulings between believers? They do not have the competence to do so. But you should be able to do that. So it's a question of competence. And then the, the, the next thing the Apostle Paul goes on to say, I say this to shame you. It, it is, is it possible that there's nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? You're going to judge the angels. You're going to judge the world. You, you have the ability in these matters. And you're saying there's no one can bring believers together and resolve issues no matter what that issue is. That's why I said, I said to your shame, Paul, from being shocked at the beginning that the to do it, now he's astonished at the don'ts in, in, in these situations. But instead, one brother takes court, uh, takes another to court, and this is in front of believers. Paul saw this other dimension. See, Paul always looked at things. One of the things I just loved in the early days when discussing about the formation of KCC, uh, Kenilworth Community Church, and one thing that was emphasised to me again, this was to be a gospel church. Kenilworth CC must be a gospel church. It must be a gospel-professing church. In other words, all who are, who are in its membership must profess in the gospel. It must be a gospel proclaiming church. This is the message to go out. And then it must be a gospel practicing church. Meaning that the quality of the lives of the believers should be in keeping with the gospel. And for Paul, every situation There's this thought. How does this impact on the gospel? How does this affect the witness of the church? How does this affect the oneness of the church? How does this affect the health of the church? And then he took action and the light of it. And then Paul says, What are you doing? You're going before these unbelievers. And they have heard what you believe in that you love one another as Christ has loved you. Yet look at them, taking one another to court, at one another's throats. You talk about this wonderful unity that you talk about this wonderful unity which you have amongst believers. That you have unity, the same unity between the father and the son. I hear you talk about that, and look at the action. You you do anything to get one over than one another. You talk about one who forsook all his rights, who was made in one who was the very form of God, and didn't think it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and became obedient. He became a servant. He became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He set aside his rights. I hear you, and yet you're here today. I demand my rights, whatever happens. You see why Paul says, taking this before those. What a witness! Taking it before those who hear about our oneness. And yet we're our heads with each other. Taking it before those and we profess to be a body, united. until one part of the body is willing to inflict pain in another part just to get the rights. My dear friends, you see what is Paul was saying, Dear friends, live up to your privileges. Live out this gospel. Let it show in this area. And this is where the, the principle really comes. That we have to take these values and have this vision to all and every department of our lives. Does my action, does my response, does my reaction to other people commend the gospel in keeping with the gospel, demonstrate the gospel and make the gospel credible in the eyes of other people. And Paul says, the very fact that you have lawsuits among you, you, among you means that you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? And not, why not rather be cheated? The very fact that you have done this, it shows you are defeated. Oh yes, you might get a judgement. And he can say, I've been victorious. You might have won the battle, but you've lost the war. You've lost the war. What you've done to your witness, what you've done to the oneness, what you've done to your spiritual well-being, that was a period victory. It meant nothing. When the Japanese attacked Paul Harbour, and many were cheering in Japan, but the leader, the admiral who led that said... There will be a reckoning for this day. And he was right. And to insist on our rights, insist on them, whenever the situation, absolutely to insist on them, irrespective of the consequences, irrespective of the the effect on the gospel and fellow believers and others, whatever victory we think we have won, we're already defeated. We have lost. A self-inflicted wound. These days, there's a lot of talk about self-harming, and how much self-harming has been done between believers, because one was determined to get their way and their rights to be asserted at the expense of others, in the sake of the gospel and the witness of the church. What a loss! What a loss! And Paul just this is utterly, utterly incompatible with what we said. Rather experience wrong for the sake of the gospel than achieve what you have set out to do and the whole cause of the gospel suffered because of that. And then Paul, from verse 9 then, and I want to close, it seems almost, how does this fit in when he starts talking about the kind of people they were and the terrible sins they committed And then he goes on, but then such were some of you, but now you've been washed, you've been justified, you've been sanctified, you have the Spirit. How does that fit together with what he's saying? What he's really saying is, remember, when you came to Christ, there was a real and radical change took place in you. And what happened was, you saw this old life for what it was, and you said, let's Get rid of that. You, you didn't want to carry that baggage into the new life. And Paul says, the principle applies to all these situations. That which is just worldly and non-Christian, uh, uh, an un-Christian, which was true of us before we came to the Lord. Now we have come to him. Whatever it is, this sin behind us. You, you, you'll hardly believe this story, but it is true. I was watching at a match in NA park and there were two teams playing and I remember there was one chap in on the team that were attacking, I think he was a wing forward and he was in the other team's penalty area and suddenly he stopped and then he turned around and he started to go in the opposite direction and everybody thought, well, what's he doing? Is this some new slick move? He then crossed the halfway line and they went over the halfway line and he got to the, the other, his own penalty area. And he was about to shoot. And he only stopped when one of his own team tackled him. And then he said afterwards, I forgot which way I was playing. <laughs> what a known goal that would be. Sometimes, dear friends, as believers, we lose sight. We almost forget of what way we're playing. What direction. We don't realise we have turned around back to the old way of thinking. That old way of acting. That old way of being. Can you imagine what it would have been for the other team members to see one of their own booting it in his own net? Apart from the shock. Say they lost the match. Can you imagine round the league when the news got out one of their team put the ball in their own net when he was ready to score in the other other net? That's what Paul is saying when it comes to these things. Always remember on whose side you're on which direction you're playing and live in accordance with it. In with it. Augustine, I, I, I love the writings of Augustine, Bishop of Hippo. And Augustine had quite a, a checkered life, checkered life before he came to know the Lord. And he had many people whom he associated with who were unsavory. But after he came to know the Lord, one night, they contrived to try and get Augustine back. And they got this lady who was rather beautiful. And they saw Augustine and said, "You go and call him." And she called Augustine, Augustine. And then she said, "Augustine, it is I." And Augustine replied, "But it is not I." He said, "That Augustine, when I came to Christ, died, and I don't live that life any longer." I don't bring those attitudes to bear. And I live in the light of my relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, this might seem something that has little to say to us. But when you look at it in this context, this particular context, it is everything to say to us. The world behind us. The cross before us. The old life away. The gospel life to follow. And may the Lord help us.